changed our schedule around a little bit. And so we're actually covering several hundred years in biblical history this morning, and we're covering several different books all at once. So uh, you kind of need to fasten your seatbelts this morning. We're going to cover a lot of material. Most of it will be from, um, you know, the 20,000-foot view up in the airplane. Uh, but we will touch down here and there and then jump back into the sky as we look at basically the end of the Old Testament. And so we have uh, pretty much since around um, February or so, we've been journeying through uh, the Bible, starting in Genesis. And, and we're now at the end of uh, that story of the first part, the Old Testament part. And so this morning, you can see on the screen here, we are going to be talking specifically about Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, uh, these three books. They all take place in the same time period. They're all in the uh, end of, of the Bible as far as the Old Testament goes, so the, the Jewish Bible, if you will, the Hebrew Bible. And we're going to be looking at these three different books along with multiple prophets that interact in the same uh, time frame. As we've said each week, the Bible is like a mural that tells a single story. Uh, today's portion of that story is going to cover the last 200 years or so of the Old Testament time period. You might not realize it, but there's about a 400-year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you've ever tried to read through the Bible and you finish out with Malachi and then you start with Matthew, and all of a sudden you run into things that you've never heard before, like synagogues and Pharisees and Sadducees and where did this stuff come from? Well, it came from those 400 years in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, next week that big gap. So today, though, we're going to look specifically at the historical books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. But there's a lot of prophets that come in there. The prophets were God's covenant enforcers. I call them God's cops. Because when the people got off track and the kings got off track, God would send in his messenger and say, hey, get back on track. Fix what's going on here, or there's going to be some bad stuff coming down the pike. And oftentimes, of course, they didn't listen. Uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are going to be three of the prophets. Those are called minor prophets. And the reason they're called minor prophets is simply because their writings are shorter. We're also going to touch on a few of the major prophets. Their writings are longer. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel uh, specifically will be mentioned uh, this morning. The mundane in your life is just like my life. There's these things we do every day. You know, the last couple of years have been a real um, uh, a change for, for our family. Um, about a year, maybe a year and a half by now, um, I got fired for the first time in my life. I'm 42. I've never been fired in my life. Um, every place I've ever been has always been like they would hire me back in a heartbeat. Um, and so it's a, it's a weird situation, um, changing of administration and in and out and in and out stuff that resulted in this. And um, I still don't know exactly what God was doing in it, but in that time period, I'm bringing this up because our day-to-day -day lives sometimes don't make any sense. And in that time period, um, it allowed us to do some things that, that wouldn't have really probably worked out previously. Um, for instance, uh, Cooper came into our home during that time period, and that allowed me to um, uh, be home with him in the morning and get things taken care of around the, around the house, et cetera, um, that we wouldn't have had. And so that extra bonding time... Um, when we adopted Cooper, was uh, pretty special and I think important for our, our first uh, year together. And that's just one of the things that we often don't realize what's, what's going on. And I don't know if that was the only reason or even if that was the reason. I'm just saying, looking back at it, we can see some things you know, in, in that season. Um, in that time period, there's some things that got pretty tiresome. Okay? If you're a mom or a dad or you've raised people or done household stuff, on a repetitive basis, you know what I'm talking about. Um, as my wife will say, the dishes never end. You're right, honey, that's because we keep eating. But uh, these things that you do over and over, you know, every day we get up in the morning and, you know, I make the breakfast and then I make the lunches and then we get people out the door and then we load the dishwasher and then I go do something and then it just repeats. Um, the mundane, the, the repetitive tasks that don't seem to have any purpose. What I want to challenge you with this morning is that the miracles are in the mundane. That, that's where God shows up and does these miracles when we don't expect it. It happens all through Scripture, and it happens in our own lives as well. The mundane is fraught with frustrations and sometimes boredom, but it's anything but pointless. It's in that minutia of the mundane that the miracles of God often occur. 
The lame man was healed at the pool of Siloam. He was sitting at the same spot he sat in for years. Every day he was in that same spot. But one day in that man's life changed everything when Jesus showed up. Daniel was just going about his everyday business when all of a sudden a new law forbade him to pray to anybody but the king. That day changed his life. That night he ended up in the lion's den. And that night God shut the lion's mouth. And Daniel saw something he'd never seen before. He never expected that the day before. The mundane. Nehemiah was business as usual as the king's cupbearer until God stirred the heart of him and the king about Jerusalem. He was just going about his business. And that's how it is, guys and girls. That's how it is in your life and in my life. God puts us in a place, and we're to be faithful. And someday, we might see and understand what he was doing. We may not all have these, what we're going to call the miraculous experiences that I just mentioned, but there is miracles going on in the minutia of your life, in the mundane of your life that you don't even realize is going on. Some of you are here today because of those exact things that I'm talking about. It was just an everyday thing. Jose mentioned he met some of you at, a, at a, uh, a Starbucks having coffee. That's just the everyday whatever. You're just doing the normal, right? And all of a sudden, something changes. There's miracles in the minutia. A minutia is a small, precise, or trivial detail of something. It might not be a word you use all the time. It's just a little thing. The minutia. Tiny. Minute. Uh, the little things. The minutia of everyday life. The miracles in the minutia. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther is what we want to look at this morning. The storyline for Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther is a little bit of review that we need to cover so that you understand what's going on. The divided kingdom map that's up on the screen took place because God's people continued to rebel against God. And so he split the kingdom. And the north and the south, two separate parts of the kingdom, over that time period, a couple of hundred years, there was 20 kings in the north, they were all bad. There was 20 kings in the south, there was eight that were good. Eventually, they continued to rebel, and they would not listen to the prophets, to God's cops that he sent in to enforce his covenant. And so the, the kings of the divided kingdom, you can see on the next slide of, of what I was just saying, the 20 and the zero. Um, it says 8 and 12. If you add those together, uh, you get the 20 that we're talking about. 8, good, 12, bad. On the north, zero, good, 20, good. Um, zero, good, 20, evil. And then the Assyrian Empire came in. In 722 B.C., and they decimated the northern kingdom. The north is no more. The north goes by the name of Israel. Israel's gone. Okay? And then a little while later, in 586 B.C., God gave the south another hundred and some odd years to get right, and they didn't. They didn't listen. They didn't pay attention. They didn't see the warning signs of what had happened to their sister in the north. And so the Babylonians came in in 586, the empire, and they took them over. Yep, they owned the whole thing. The Babylonian empire did. But then the Babylonian Empire doesn't last because no empire lasts. The next empire on the scene was the Persian Empire, and that's where our story takes place today, the Persian Empire. As the Persian Empire took over everything that Assyria had owned and everything that Babylon had owned and expanded it even further. One of the things you see is the kingdoms continue to increase in Scripture, but none of them last, except for God's kingdom. The Persian Empire comes on the scene, and a key figure in this story is going to be the King Cyrus, and we're going to talk about him a couple of times this morning. Cyrus had been prophesied by God over 100 years before Cyrus was even born. By name, God had revealed to Isaiah the prophet that a man named Cyrus was going to come and be the ruler in Persia and was going to let the people go. And this was after God had revealed to Jeremiah that the people were going to go into captivity for 70 years into Babylon because of their sin. And so we see that the scriptures are unfolding this historical accuracy that is revealed previously in the prophets. This is one of the reasons why we can trust the scriptures. This is called predictive prophecy. Most prophecy is not predictive like this. Most of the prophecy in the Bible has to do with, like, right now. God sends a prophet, and he says, change your ways right now. But these are predictive prophecies about things hundreds of years in the future that God said were going to happen. And guess what? They happened. The map on the screen of the fall of Israel and Judah shows you, you can try, kind of follow the arrows here. The greenish-yellow arrow in the middle of the screen uh, shows that Israel, that's the I in the box, goes up to Assyria. And then in the middle of the screen, there's a J, and it's going towards the right to Babylon, kind of where the, the little guy figure is over there. And so this is where the people go. Hundreds of miles away, they are dragged out of the promised land that God has given them. I want to read a couple of verses. And then I want us to look at a quick video this morning. We have about four different uh, video clips this morning. And the reason is um, 
I'm hoping that what they'll do is they're going to tie in hundreds of years worth of data that would take me several more hours, um, and, and you don't want to stay for that many hours probably. And so the video is going to tie it in, and then I'm going to connect the pieces for us and demonstrate what God is doing in this situation. So in Jeremiah 29:10, God says, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. So if you remember from last week, Daniel was in exile in Babylon, and he was reminded of this promise. So Daniel is a prophet. We have a whole book that we have he wrote. And he is talking about a different prophet, Jeremiah. And he's like, oh, people get ready. It's 70 years about up. God is going to bring us back. Okay? And so today, that's where we're at. In Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12, he says, The whole land will become a desolate ruin, and the nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration. The land of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, for their guilt, and I will make it a ruin forever. So he's going to take out the Babylonians. Now, when Jeremiah is, is speaking about this, and Daniel is now saying, okay, it's about time for this to happen. We've we got to connect the dots with one other thing. Um, Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet that God had prophesied to and revealed to, and he had told him that I am going to take these dry bones that have been scattered all over, because remember what I showed you, Israel and Judah, the kingdom, they've been split and they've been scattered, and God said, I am going to bring them back and begin to restore them and make something new. And so I want you to watch this, uh, this visual aspect of the prophecy in Ezekiel. brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the voice of the Lord. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. history stuff, but you can't understand what's going on in the scriptures if you don't understand the historical context of what's going on. So Ezekiel, okay, he was taken into captivity in Babylon during this whole time that I'm telling you about, okay? The, the, the north went to Assyria, and then the south went to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and so Daniel ended up in Babylon. Ezekiel ended up in Babylon. Jeremiah did not. Jeremiah is the one that said you're all going to end up in Babylon. He didn't end up there. The rest of the people did. He was right, okay? But Ezekiel went, Daniel went. So this that we just saw is Ezekiel is given this message by God, and it's a very visual message, that these dry, dead bones are going to be brought back to life. Well, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about restoring his people. So if you need couple of key passages of what the whole Bible is about. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is the one you want to know. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. So remember it. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 is when God shows up to Abraham and makes him a, a covenant promise. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. And God tells him to leave your land and go to a new land that he's going to show him. He doesn't even tell him where it is yet. He just says, you got to go. And then he promises to bless him. 
He's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a new name. He's going to bless him. And get this, through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Every nation, tongue, and tribe. You get to the book of Revelation. It talks about the beautiful chorus of the heavenly voices that people from every nation, every tongue, and every tribe are all there together. There's no more divisions over ethnicities and races and countries and nations. Not in God's kingdom. That's how we know, by the way, when we're becoming more like God and his kingdom, when those things are disappearing. And so the people are scattered. And God is telling Ezekiel, Ezekiel, I'm going to gather them back up. And Daniel, around the same time, is reminded of Jeremiah, who had said through God's revelation that this is going to be for 70 years. And that's about us. So you put all this together, and that's what I'm trying to help you do here. You put all that together, and guess what? We're arriving at the time for God to start bringing his people back, for the dry bones to start coming back to life. Now, I'll just preface this with the dry bones that we're going to see starting to come back to life is not fully fulfilled in Israel. There's more. There's more that comes in Jesus. There's more that comes after that. And so next week, we're going to talk more about that as, as Jesus relates to it. So God's promises, though, his promise is greater than, than the problems. Okay, we talked last week on how God's promise is greater than Daniel's problem. Well, it's also greater than your problem. And it's also greater than Esther's problem and Ezra's problem and Nehemiah's problem and everybody else's problem. And so when you look at Jeremiah and then Ezekiel, and I keep saying this because I want you to grasp this, God's promise is greater. And so sitting in captivity in Babylon, Daniel recognized. God's promise is greater. And so he starts to pray and confess his sin, and the people start getting ready to return. And then God does amazing things in pagan kings' hearts. Because the Proverbs tell us that God sets up kings and he tears them down. That the, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So God is working in their midst. He's working in the minutia. So this morning, miracles in the minutia. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. We see the stirring of a pagan king's heart, the stirring of his people's heart, and then the insomnia. You think these sleepless nights? I have these all the time. I wake up at 3 in the morning. I can't go back to sleep. I get up and go to work. All right? 4 in the morning, whatever it is. Ask my wife. What are you doing? And then you hear some song in the Z about these sleepless nights and God's doing something. And you're like, really? Like what? So other than getting work done. Um, so... It's in the minutia. The insignificance or not of a girl like Esther caught up in the midst of this entire drama that she wishes was but a dream, but turns out to be what's going to save her people's lives. This timeline in the Persian map on the screen, if it comes out very well, gives a little bit of a, of a glimpse of what's going on throughout this, this time period. If you move from the left all the way to the right, what, what you just see is if you see the end of the kingdom and then you see these continuous aspects of God doing different moves. It's probably kind of hard to see um, from there. So what I'm going to do now is we're going to go into a, another video clip that's going to take us into the time period of um, Ezra, I believe. Before the Israelites left Babylon, the king of Persia, who had overthrown Babylon, decided to help them rebuild the temple back in Jerusalem. He organized people from all over the land to give livestock and supplies to the Israelites. He even returned all of the gold and silver that the Babylonians had stolen from the temple. 50,000 Israelites returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt the altar of the temple, then laid the foundation for the building before the temple was even finished, the Israelites began to offer sacrifices and worship God in it once again. But other countries surrounding Jerusalem began to worry about the Israelites regaining power. So they sabotaged the rebuilding project, and it came to a standstill for 16 years. But God used two men, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage the Israelites to resume building the temple and not to be afraid of their so they continued building, strengthened by the prophet's word. The opposition continued, this time from a man named Tatanai, the governor of a nearby region. 
He wanted to stop the Israelites from building and worked to convince the Persian king, Darius, to stop the Israelites. Not only did King Darius not stop the rebuilding project, he threatened Tachanai and anyone else who would try to stop the temple from being rebuilt, that he would kill them. Then he made Tachanai give funding, animals, and supplies to the Israelites. So the work continued. And almost 70 years after it had been destroyed, the Israelites finished rebuilding the temple. They dedicated it by sacrificing hundreds of animals to God and returning the priests back to their positions of leadership in the temple. God was once again worshipped in Jerusalem. So the book of Ezra is the first of the three historical books, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, that we want to look at this morning. On your table is a, a notes handout, and there's also a handout that has the restoration period that looks like this on it. All right, So I know it might feel a little bit more like school than uh, a Sunday uh, sermon for a moment. But again, you really can't understand what's going on without this. So I'm going to continue to refer to that, both the first and the second uh, chart that's on there. So, uh, the second one will show up on the screen in a little while. And that's just going to help you get a little bit of an idea of where we're talking about and how these books fit in together. So the first one here is Ezra. So what, what I want you to understand first is what you see on the screen is something called the Cyrus Cylinder. Okay, a lot of people have questions about the Bible and the validity of the Bible. The Cyrus Cylinder is not a made-up thing. Okay, that's a real thing. If you go to the proper museum, I don't remember which one, but uh, you can look it up, Google it. It'll tell you where it's at. You can actually go see this thing. Okay? This is a, a cylinder it's made, out, made out of clay. All those little indentations you see, if you got closer, you would actually see that that's writing. Okay, And this was actually made by King Cyrus, or one of his people he told to make it, during the time of the Persians. This thing records material and historical events that line up with exactly what the scriptures tell us. Okay, This is archaeological evidence for our story that we have in Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Okay, So... The Bible says in Ezra 1, this is not going to be on the screen, okay? In Ezra 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom. And he also he put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all of his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, that's the first three verses of Ezra chapter 1. Which, by the way, if you looked at the very last verses of Chronicles, you would see that it's identical. So what this is, is this is like a, a connecting hinge with Ezra and the Chronicles showing you. Because in Chronicles it ends with, what's God going to do now? And now we pick that up in Ezra, and we see that what does God do? This is where God works in the minutia. Okay? So we wonder, in our country, we don't have kings, we have presidents. And so you get political debates and whatnot, and, and I don't venture into those very often because they don't usually go anywhere productive. Okay? But what the scriptures tell us is that whoever's in charge, God can do whatever he wants with that person's heart. Now, it might not make sense to us. We might not see anything going on, um, but that doesn't mean he's not doing anything. So what Ezra tells us is that God stirs the heart of King Cyrus to tell the people to go back home. You read the rest of chapter 1 of Ezra, chapter 1, and you find that then God stirred the hearts of his people to get some of them to go back home. So who's the one doing the work? God's doing the work. He's stirring the pagan king's heart. He's stirring his people's heart to go back because the 70 years is up. You're like, well, how is Jeremiah going to get fulfilled? How is the 70 years going to end and the people are going to go back? Well, God puts the idea in the king. And then he tells his people, this is God working in the day-to-day -day and the minutia. We don't even know when. Cyrus is described as the king of Persia. But at the time of issuing the proclamation, he's actually ruling in Babylon, where the Jews had been living in exile over a very long period of time, over 70 years, or around 70 years. What happened was that Cyrus was king of the Medes and the Persians, but in 538 B.C., he conquered Babylon on the very night of Belshazzar's feast. We talked about that last week a little bit, that Babylon is having this huge party. They have an impregnable city. Remember, the walls of the city went 35 feet underground. This thing was not going to be penetrated by any army. Yeah, Cyrus didn't penetrate the walls. 
He diverted the water from the river that ran right through the middle of the city, and he went through the river. And while they were having a big party, he went and took the city. And so he's ruling in Babylon for a little bit. And God speaks to him, points to him, pokes his heart, and says, let my people go. This isn't the first time we've seen this, right? Remember the Exodus, the Pharaoh? What did God say? Let my people go. When the people left, what did they take with them? They plundered the Egyptians. They took all this gold and everything else. And what did you just see in the little video? The same thing happens. God does it again. There's another exodus. The people are going back home, and he's sending them not empty-handed. He's sending them with everything they need. The first time, back in Exodus, they built a tabernacle that was like a portable, movable tent, just a precursor to the temple. Now they're going back, and they're going to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. That's what's going on. Jeremiah is mentioned in connection with the proclamation because more than 70 years earlier, he had prophesied the length of time the Jews would spend in exile in Babylon and their eventual return home. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good words towards you and cause you to return to this place, Jeremiah 29.10. An even more amazing prophecy is that of Isaiah, who was 150 years earlier, actually named Cyrus as the instrument that God would use. He said, quote, Isaiah 44, 28, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Who does he say that to? Cyrus. It's in the text. Isaiah 44, 28. Also in Isaiah 45, 1 to 5, says the Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to disarm kings, to open the doors before him and the gates will not be shut. He says, I will go before you, and I will level the uneven places. I will shatter the bronze doors, and I will cut the iron bars in two. I will give you the treasures of darkness and riches from secret places, so you may know that I am Yahweh. Remember, that's the repeated theme through all of Scripture, that you will know that he is Yahweh, the only true God. The God of Israel, call you by your name. I call you by your name because of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I give a name to you, though you do not know me. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. There is no God but me. I will strengthen you, though you do not know me. God is working behind the scenes in this king who's not yet born, who doesn't know him in a salvation relationship, and God is going to use him to do what he needs to do to fulfill his plan in the world. That's how God works. The Cyrus Cylinder provides us with the very evidence that that is what God is up to and how God is working. So in Ezra, you can see on this diagram on the screen, after being in, in the Babylonian exile for all these years, God is beginning to do a work, and he's going to send them home. Starts with Cyrus, gets his heart ready, or tells him to go, and then he tells his own people. The book of Ezra is a straightforward account of one of the most important periods in the ancient history of Israel, the return of the Jews to their homeland after 70 years of exile in Babylon. Ezra and Nehemiah overlap to a certain extent, although it's probable that Ezra arrived in Jerusalem first and had done some ministry there. So you can see on the screen here that what you actually have is you have Ezra um, 1 to 6 on the far left. This is on the bottom, Zerubbabel, okay? He's one of the leaders. That's Ezra chapter 1 to 6. And then you have Ezra, he's a priest and a scribe in the middle, Ezra chapter 7 to 10. On the right side, you've got Nehemiah and the man, and then the, the book, Nehemiah chapters 1 through 13. Up at the very top, if you look, you'll see Esther uh, with King Xerxes, and then you'll also see the other kings that ruled up there starting on the left side, Cyrus, Darius, then Xerxes, then Artaxerxes. So what I want to draw your attention to is how all three books are connected. Alright? And so over here, you've got Ezra. Here on the right bottom, you've got Nehemiah, and up at the top, you have Esther. These are all coming together in what God is doing to restore his people, to restore them into a proper place, to restore worship, to restore the power of God in their lives and what he is trying to accomplish. And so Ezra arrived in Jerusalem around 458 B.C., and he's followed 13 years later uh, by Nehemiah. The tabernacle was that first temporary meeting place that God made. And what you need to understand about tabernacle, okay, and the temple, and why a modern-day church is not a tabernacle or a temple, is that the tabernacle and the temple was the meeting place of God where God showed up. But the New Testament scriptures teach us that since Jesus came and the Holy Spirit came, 
According to the book of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that if you're a believer, you and I are now the temple of God. So you don't have to go to some temple to meet with God. No, rather you are. You become the temple of God. And so instead of this permanent temple where everybody had to come to Jerusalem, okay, to, for this glorious event and to see the glory of God, instead we are supposed to be the ambassadors of God, the representatives of God, that wherever we go, we take God with us. That's why the Ten Commandments, one of them is, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We, we kind of miss the big part of that. We all think it's just about cussing and whatnot. It's not. Okay? That, that plays into it, but it's not, not really what it's about. Don't take don't take. When you take stuff, you, you go places. Don't take God's name in vain. When you go, don't take his name in a bad way where you're going. When you're traveling as an ambassador of God, make sure that you make his name the way it's supposed to be. Don't dirty his name. Don't drag it through the mud, if you will. And so uh, Ezra arrives there, and he begins uh, to help the people along, along with Zerubbabel. And so the tabernacle, that's just the, the image of it there. You can go to the next one now. So the temple. So you can see in, in the image here of the temple, many different things were, were taking place in, over the time period of scriptures regarding um, the temple. And so uh, from Solomon being originally the one that uh, had built it, David before him had wanted to, but God said no because of his bloodshed. So Solomon builds it, and then it is taken out by King Nebuchadnezzar, and now it's going to be rebuilt. And then after that, King Herod is going to expand it even more. As, as the people in the book of Ezra, they go and they, they uh, rebuild this uh, temple. And you saw in the little video clip that they stopped working on it because of opposition. And so it sat dormant for more than a dozen years. The, the people were not working on it. And what did God have to do to be a catalyst to get them to get back to work? He sent his prophets with God's messengers, God's cause, the covenant enforcers, so that they could get back to work. You and I tend to do the same thing. We get into this, this rut. The routine is, is no longer fun. Or there's an obstacle. Uh, there's something against us, and it's too hard. We, we don't want to go against it anymore. We don't want to continue to fight against it. Same thing happens. It's also scripture. So God sends in Haggai, Zechariah, and says, what are you doing? You guys have been back. Remember, they, they came back from, from Babylon and Persia. You've been back long enough to fix your houses, but you haven't fixed God's house. First things first. God's kingdom takes precedence. Because God's kingdom is the only kingdom that lasts forever. He says, get your priorities right and get back to God's business being first. And so that's what's going on in the, the book of Ezra. When when Cyrus lets them go go back and, and to build the the temple. Also in Ezra, Ezra is uh, a man that has a couple of roles. Ezra is a priest, and Ezra is a scribe. The benefits of that for the people are that as a priest, okay, he, he, he knows God's word. God instructs him to teach the people and to get the temple ready. So he, he's uh, an official, if you will, in that capacity. He's also a scribe, which means that he writes down what God says. And that's part of the reason that we have anything to even look at and talk about this morning, because he writes this down. And so that's what's going on there. Um, uh, the next video, I think that's what's next, yeah, takes us. <coughs> yeah, let me talk about that for a minute. That's, that's fine. Let me talk about that for a minute. All right. So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, okay? And so you can see here some of the big ideas of both Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, all right? So God's people are rebuild the temple. Um, and Nehemiah, God's people rebuild the wall. And then in Esther, um, you see God behind the scenes. Esther's an interesting book. Esther is, is a book of the Bible that God's name is never mentioned in. So this was debated by some people. It should even be in the Bible. But again, the cool thing with Esther is that it shows that in your life and in my life, how God is at work behind the scenes orchestrating the events when we don't even realize it. So that's what's going on there. Um, this is the chart that you have. It's the second one on the paper that's on your tables for you. And what I want you to understand before we look at um, – Esther, is that Ezra chapters 1 to 6 occur up at the top, and then, this is historically, okay, chronologically, and then the book of Esther, and then Ezra 7 to 10, and then Nehemiah. Originally, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, okay? It's just, a, it's one book. They put them on a scroll, all right? And then Esther takes place in the middle 
of Ezra. All right? I know you won't remember it all. That's why you can take that paper home. All right? So, go ahead. So, with Ezra, what we see is that God's presence, okay, is being restored. All right? God's presence. Remember, in the Old Testament, the temple was the place where God met. All through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, God is about getting God's people and God's place to be in God's presence and live by God's power. You got that? I'll say it again in a little bit so you can get it. All right? In the Garden of Eden, guess where the people were? They were with God. God's people in God's place, in God's presence, with God's power. What happened as soon as Genesis 3 happens and they, and they eat the forbidden fruit? Broken. They're cast out. They're no longer in God's place. They're no longer in God's presence. They no longer have God's power. Gone. What is the rest of the story about? It is getting back to that place. You get to the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, and what do you find? God's people in God's place, in God's presence, in God's power. From Genesis to Revelation, that's the game plan. <clears throat> the other thing we see happening is that God's people – back one. The other thing you see happening is that God's people are being brought back together in community. So God is restoring his presence to them, and he's restoring the people into a sense of community. That they are no longer scattered all over, but they are gathered back together to be the people of God. When Jesus says you're supposed to be a light to the world, it's not you and you that's a light to the world. It's you, plural, that together the community of God is a light to the world. How long does one log burn by itself, and how bright is that? Not very. But you put all the logs together, and what do you got? You get a bonfire. And that's what it's supposed to be, a bonfire for Jesus that the world would see, and they would want to be part of that. So Ezra's position as priest and scribe is to renew and restore the spiritual climate of the people. If your life isn't where it's supposed to be, listen, you need to focus first on the spiritual. The social, which we'll talk about in a little bit with Nehemiah, the social comes after. The other aspects come next, okay? The spiritual. you got to get right with God first. That's number one. And so again, you have Zerubbabel coming in, helping lead the people, and then it's the first few chapters of, of Ezra. Uninvited. If they did, they risked being put to death. 
But Esther was brave and approached the king who asked, what is your request? Esther said that she wished for the king to host a banquet and to make sure that Haman, the man who wanted to kill the Israelites, was there. At the banquet, she would make her requests known. When the day of the banquet came, everyone, including Haman, was there. The king asked Esther what it was that she wanted. She revealed that she was an Israelite, a Jew, and begged for her own life and the lives of her people. The king was furious with Haman, who had convinced him to create the law and had him arrested and killed. Then King Xerxes not only removed the law to kill the Israelites, but gave all of them living in the region protection and rights. Because of Esther's bravery, the Israelites were spared and even honored. So while Ezra, Zerubbabel, and the others are rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, others have either stayed in Babylon or gone to Persia and have not returned to Jerusalem. The story of Esther is what that is all about. So Esther is in Persia. Susa is the capital. So there she is. Now why her family chose to go there and not return, I don't know. But the fact is, she's one of the ones that was left there, and they went to Persia. And so while she's there, these events transpire. And if you don't know the story of Esther, it's, it's fairly short in the Bible. You could read it this week. Um, but the, the gist of it is there was a queen named Vashti, and she disappointed her king, the king. She kind of dissed him, all right? And so because of the way the laws were then, you know, she was removed, and the king's going to get a new wife. And the way they decided to do that is have a big beauty pageant. So they, they chose all these girls, and then they pampered them for three years, and then they go before the king, and he, he picks one, okay? And Esther, Esther gets picked. Now, you've got to put yourself in her place. She's a Jewish girl in a foreign pagan land. Her people have started to return back to Jerusalem. God is fulfilling his promise he made through Jeremiah. Seven years is up, and I'll start bringing you back. And now she's picked to be a pagan king's wife in a pagan land. How does any of this make sense? And she's not even allowed to marry a pagan king. It makes no sense at all. Not on a human level. And this is where the upper story of God's story and the lower of yours and mine interact together. This is where Esther goes about her daily business in the minutia of life, and all of a sudden the miracles happen in the minutia. And now she, just like Daniel, is in a crisis of belief. What in the world does she do in this situation? So she's the new queen, and we fast forward a little bit. And the king, one night, has insomnia. He can't sleep. Now, listen, this is just complete craziness. God poked Cyrus's heart and said, let my people go. And now he pokes this king's heart and says, don't sleep tonight. He can't sleep. So he gets up, and what does he do when he can't sleep? He says, bring me something to read. What does he read? Some fiction book, some comic book? No, none of that, if they even had it, right? What does he read? They recorded everything that took place throughout the day of the king. And so he reads through the events of the previous years of his reign. Sounds pretty boring to me. It's like when you get to the section, the first nine chapters of the book of Chronicles, and it's all these genealogies, and to you and me, has no relevance. It seems boring. Yeah, it sounds like that's what the king's reading. And so he's reading through all this, and he reads how a guy named Mordecai had saved his life. And so he stops, and he's like, huh, did we ever do anything for that guy? He saved my life. Like, nope, king, we never did. And he says, we need to do something. And by now, I guess he's been up all night because it's morning time, and Haman shows up. And Haman, you have to understand who Haman is. Haman, it says, is an Agagite. And you're like, so what, Kevin? What's that mean? Yeah, this is where, this is where the whole Bible story has to be connected for you. Okay? And Agagite means they're from Agag. Agag was a king that Saul was supposed to kill way, way, way back in the Old Testament. And Saul didn't kill him. 
Daniel did kill Agag, but obviously some of them had been let go, and they escaped. And now you have a descendant, and he's the one, Haman, that makes the rule, that gets the law passed to wipe out all the Jews. Why? Because they've hated them for hundreds of years. Why is this story in the Bible? Why is that? There's only two books in the Bible named after Israel, Ruth and Esther. Why is this in the Bible? Because God's people are about to be wiped out. This group of them, at least. Back to Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The promise of God to Abraham. That through him he would bless all the nations. And that God's people would be in God's place and God's presence and God's power. Well, that can't happen if they get wiped out. So what does God do? He gives the kingdom come in the middle of the night. He has a certain scroll brought to the king that he reads. And he learns that a guy saved his life. Now he wants to reward that guy. And in the meantime, he married a Jewish girl. And God had all that set up so that Esther now has a choice to make. See, here's where it is. God sets it up, but you got to make the choice. Esther doesn't want to go. Esther doesn't want to go before the king and ask. Because if Esther goes, the way the rule is, is if she approaches the king's throne area and the king doesn't hold out his scepter to her, she gets her head taken off. She already knows what happened to Bashi, the previous queen. She's gone. So she says, I don't know about this. And Mordecai tells her, her relatives that raised her, he says, you think this is some accident? He says, you think you're going to be safe in the palace? Once they find out that you're a Jew, you're going to be gone too. And the scriptures say, she's given this opportunity, and that if she does not do this, God will get another person. You see, here's the deal. God puts you in a place, and he blesses you to be a blessing to others. If you don't stand in the gap and do that, he'll get somebody else. Who misses out? You miss out. God's plan is not going to stop. God had planned. He'd already put it in the hearts. He's already set up the situation to save his people there in that spot. If Esther doesn't stand in the gap, I don't know what else is going to happen, but God will find someone else to do what God needs to do. Tony Evans says, the biblical definition of a blessing is enjoying experiencing and extending God's goodness. Why is extending underlined? Because you've got to take the blessing you get, and you've got to be a blessing to somebody else. You've been blessed to be a blessing. You ain't been blessed so that you can hog it all to yourself, so you can just enjoy all God's blessing on yourself. You've been blessed to be a blessing to others. If you don't pass it on, you're breaking the chain. You're stopping the pipeline. You're blocking it up. It's like a blocked artery. What's it going to do eventually? That's right. Unblock it. Stop hogging the blessing. God pours out the blessing on you so that you can let that blessing pour out to other people. And so Esther is put in this position, okay? Her life was turned upside down. She was just going about her day to day, every day, coming home one day, and all of a sudden the king's men show up and they take her out of the house, and suddenly she's part of this group that is going to be groomed to possibly become part of the king's harem, and she might even become the queen. What? Talk about having your, your world rocked. After a while, Tony Evans calls her the, the diva. After a while, she's this queen with all this benefit. Mordecai is trying to get her attention to help her understand. You don't have all this benefit just for you to soak in it yourself. God's put you in this place for certain reasons. You ever think about why God's put you in the place that you're in? What God's doing in the minutia of your life? That he's got you there so that you can be a blessing to somebody else? Might be that person in the next cubicle in your office. It might be the, the next server that you work next to. It might be the busboy that you go back and forth with. It might be someone in your, in your class that's, that you're sitting next to, that you're studying next to. It might be whatever it is. God's put you there. I'm not there to tell them about Jesus. You're there. I'm not there to be a light to them, to be an encouragement to them, to, to help them in the tough times in their life. You're there to do that. We're blessed to be a blessing. Abra Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. Adam was blessed to be a blessing. He had to carry out the responsibilities God gave him. If you go back and read in Genesis, you'll see that God blessed Adam, and then he gave him responsibility. With a blessing comes responsibility. That's how it works. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing and to carry out the responsibilities given to him. Isaac was blessed to be a blessing and to carry out the responsibilities given to him. Jacob was blessed to be a blessing and to carry out the responsibilities given to him. Joseph was blessed to be a and to carry out the responsibilities given to him. Same thing in your life. You're blessed to be a blessing and carry out the responsibilities given to you. The responsibilities are to be faithfully obedient to God and continue the pipeline of blessing in the small things, in the minutia, when you don't feel like it. Jesus didn't feel like being on the cross. 
but he did it. He prayed three times, you know, if there's any other way. He didn't feel like being on the cross, but he was faithful and obedient to reach the blessing because he didn't block the pipeline. We do. Esther didn't feel like approaching the king, but she did it to reach the blessing. All the people. Those returning to Jerusalem didn't feel like building the wall, but they did. So Esther teaches us several things about the restoration of what God was doing. Remember, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, God's going to bring the people back and restore them. So in Esther, what do we see? We see very simply, let's just think one thing. God restores his people. God saves his people. God delivers his people. Her position was political. I don't know if any of you work in any type of political position or not, but people in political positions have the opportunity to do something positive or negative. If, you, if you're not in that position, you know, you, we're, we're not, I'm not in a political position, so I'm not making the decisions. But the people in political decisions, they make the decisions. So I'm starting this new business, right? This, this new risky endeavor, right? That I'm trusting God in. I spent all this time. I, I, you gotta get licenses with the, the federal government, the state license. Um, so that's federal, state, county, and city. That's four different groups. You gotta all go get basically the same license from, from all four places, right? And so um, I didn't set that up. I just gotta deal with it because somebody else set that up, right? And so these political positions, they make rules or whatever else that, that affect other people for good or for bad, all right? And so. Think about it. People in political positions like Esther, um, you are there to do good, to have the blessing continue on, to let it flow through the pipeline. It was no accident that all this happened, the king had insomnia. And so um, Ezra, and then Esther is the next book, but remember, Esther comes right in the middle. So Esther is in the middle of actually the book of Ezra. And so then the, the last book of our three historical books that we're looking at today is uh, Nehemiah. And so watch this short clip on Nehemiah. books that we're looking at this morning, and we are coming in for a landing here, <coughs> Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, um, but again, Esther comes in the middle there, so it's Nehemiah, which is the last one that we're looking at here. So Nehemiah is about restoring God's place and receiving God's power to impact the world, getting the blessing to be the blessing in a sense. Um, Nehemiah is about rebuilding a wall. If you hear anybody teach or preach on Nehemiah, it's usually about leadership, and it's about uh, rebuilding a wall. And Nehemiah is about the social aspect. So 
Uh, Ezra comes in and he rebuilds the spiritual foundation. And once you have the spiritual foundation, now we can start working on the social aspects of that that Nehemiah talks about. And really, guys, we need to be doing both. We should care about the city that we live in. We should want improvements in the city that we live in. We should want crime reduced in the city that we live in. God does. We should. Our job is, in a sense, to make it a little slice of heaven if possible. Now listen, we're going to face opposition all the time. It's never going to become exactly like it would be in heaven. There's too much opposition here. There's still too much sin here. There's still too, too much stuff that isn't the right way. But your job and my job is to represent God properly and that we do that. We get the spiritual right first, and then we also work on the social aspects of it. God cares about both. If you don't think that God cares about justice and social justice and, and, and the poor and the homeless and all this type of stuff, go read the prophets. The prophets constantly are railing on God's people. And one of the reasons he judges God's people is because they haven't cared about those very people that God cares about. The most helpless people are the people that God is most concerned about because they have nobody to stand up for them and to protect them. And so God cares. Think about your own life. The way that we end up getting saved is because we're helpless. We are drowning in our sin. We're drowning in our sin, and Christ comes in to save us, the helpless, from our sin. That's spiritual salvation, but he also does so much more than that. And so in the book of Nehemiah, we can summarize it kind of this way. There's several things that are being restored in, in Nehemiah. In the first seven chapters is God's place, Jerusalem, the city. God had chosen Jerusalem as the place to set up his temple and to meet with his people. It's broken down and destroyed because for 70 years it's been run over by whoever else lived there, by animals, etc. Because the people have been taken away. And so the place is being restored. Jerusalem is being restored. Also, God's power is being restored. How so? Because God's power was connected at this point in time with the temple and the people's faithfulness which is why covenant is also listed. They renew the covenant at this time period, and by renewing the covenant, they're saying they'll be obedient and faithful to God. If you want the power of God, you need to be faithful and obedient to God. What happened to Samson in the book of Judges when he disobeyed God and did his own thing? God's power left him because God's presence left him, and he ended up blinded and imprisoned. When he repented, there was a return of God's power, and he was able to do one last great feat in judgment upon the Philistines. The third thing in Nehemiah, in addition to God's place and God's power, is God's protection, the walls. Now, this was a physical thing. This was a reality. This was to keep the animals out, to keep uh, thieves out, etc., to protect the, the city of Jerusalem. But you can also think of it, the word type has to do with foreshadowing how, how God um, spiritually wants to do this for us as well. But there's a definitely, in Nehemiah, it's a physical aspect. So we don't want to just allegorize it, okay? It is a physical aspect that God was um, rest, restoring there. Nehemiah, he helps restore political power in a sense. So God's power is manifest as God's people are obedient and faithful to his covenant. It's also manifest in his judgment of his people when they're not obedient and faithful to his covenant. Even the pagan kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, as well as Pharaoh, learned to fear, to some degree, the name of Yahweh. Because Habakkuk 2.14 tells us that God's desire is that just as the waters cover the surface of the earth, the glory, the name, the fame of Yahweh would cover the surface of the earth. That every person would know the name of God. That's why Philippians says, at the end of the age, every knee shall bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Nehemiah, on a practical level, is about getting the society into place, the structures that are necessary for a society to function properly. At Nehemiah's time, the temple was being rebuilt by Zerubbabel. That was in the first return. And then Ezra in the second return. But the city wall was still in ruins with no protection. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. Here's another one of those miracles in the minutia. What is Nehemiah doing? Nehemiah works for a pagan king. He's the cupbearer. He's basically an executive assistant. He's very trusted. He's consistent, and he's loyal. He's been placed in that position not by accident. Nehemiah is able to secure the permission, the protection, and the provision by, of the Persian government to rebuild and restore the city of Jerusalem. You think it's accidental? There's no accident there. God had put him in place for a certain time and place, and so that at that day, when it was time, he was able to be sent by the king back to Jerusalem with the orders, the provision, and the protection to get done what needs to be gotten done. God put him in place for a reason. His whole life was leading up to that one thing. You ever think about the life of Moses? Moses lived 120 years. 
you know when Moses led the Exodus? At 80. At 80. God spent 80 years preparing Moses for the last 40 years of his life. If you look at almost anybody that's alive today who is known as great or has a reputation or I don't, I don't care if it's the business world or what it is, there's a few exceptions, but not all that many. Generally speaking, when do they do their greatest work in life? It's the last third of their life, the last quarter, the last second. Their life has been a preparation for that the entire time. And you and I are impatient. I still am. Young people are even more so. We want it now. But what God's doing is preparing the whole time for whatever that work he has for us at some other point. And so let's put this all together. Ezra and Esther as a summary. God's presence was still available. Okay? He left the temple just prior to the temple's destruction. Okay, in 586 BC. But he's back. And that's the news here. God's back. God's people, they continue. Through the courageous acts of Esther, whom God has put in place for such a time as this, God saves his people, and the Jewish people are not killed off. God's people are gathered back together after having been scattered across the nations. They're gathered to restore the community of God and to be a light to the nations. God's place of dwelling is in the temple. He located it in the city of Jerusalem, the, the place of Zion, the city on a hill, to be a light to the nations. That's where Jesus gets this imagery from. It really was up on a hill. God's power is restored to the people as they are put in God's place through God's presence. And by renewing and restoring the covenant, they are granted the power that comes from faithful obedience if they can keep it. And God's protection typified by the walls surrounding the city, are back in place, demonstrating God's continued faithfulness to protect his people as they are faithful and obedient to him. So, this morning, miracles and the minutia. What's your minutia? What miracles might God be doing or trying to do in your life? Your circumstances are the means that God uses to accomplish his plan in your life. They're not accidental. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, which the scriptures clearly teach from Genesis to Revelation, it's not an accident that you're here today. It's not an accident that these things occurred. We may not be here in a month, but you came today and we're here. And there's a reason for that. Two weeks ago, this would not have been the message scheduled. But today, this is the message that came forward because of some things that God is doing. That's not an accident either. Now, what you do with that is your choice. And then the consequence of that is, is wherever it goes. Next week, we're going to continue this story, and, and, and we're going to jump from the Old Testament into the New Testament. And you saw in one of the video clips that Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, and then there's a 400-year time gap. Malachi challenged the people. And Malachi told the people, because they had become corrupt again, that if you don't straighten up your ways, God will shut the doors of the temple. But unfortunately, the cycle in Scripture continues. The people came back from Babylon and Persia. There was some excitement. There was some renewed, heartfelt worship of God. They had put away the worship of their idols and their pagan ways. But it doesn't seem to stay. And so this morning, my prayer is that you would be alert, be prepared, that you would be positioned and poised to act when God speaks. Because he has prepared you for such a time as this. Experiencing God is not a continuous flow of mountaintop experiences. The mountaintop experiences are simply miracles in the mundane that are a reminder of God's continuous work so that when you are tempted to quit, you'll endure to the end till you receive the crown of life and you'll see the fruition of what God began. That mountaintop is to get you through the valley. The mountaintop is to remind you of God's presence and triumph. The miracles in the minutia, people. The majority of the people in the Bible never saw the Red Sea part. The majority of the people in the Bible never were on the mountain with Moses. The majority of the people in the Bible did not see somebody's leg grow back or someone rise from the dead. The majority of the people in the Bible lived a day in and a day out life. And they trusted God. And if they were faithful and obedient, God was doing these miracles in the minutia of their life. And that's a challenge for you and I. You want restoration? 
You want relief, you want rest, be faithful in that. Pray with me, would you? Father, we come to you this morning in humility, realizing that so often we want some mighty miracle to show up in our life. I'll be the first one to confess that. But we realize, Lord, from the pages of Scripture and your word that the miracles are often in the minutia. They're in the little things. As we're faithful in these little things, Lord, that you do a great thing. That as we're faithful in day by day, minute by minute, raising a child to become a worshiper of God, that that is a miraculous payoff at the end after years of sometimes mundane God, I pray this morning, if there's anybody here who doesn't know you as Savior, that today they would realize that the great faithfulness of God and the love of God desires to pour out blessings upon their life as they would submit themselves to you. And if you're here this morning, as we're still in this time of prayer, I invite you that if you don't know for sure that you have a relationship with God, and if God is, is tugging on your heart like he did with Cyrus and the others in our stories today, I, I would challenge you that you respond. Cyrus responded even as a pagan. So I would challenge you this morning, whether you're young or older or anywhere in between, that if God's speaking to you, you respond today. And if you don't know him, you can respond simply like this. You, you can, right where you're sitting, you can cry out to God and say, God, I realize that you are in control of things. I realize that, that I don't have everything all together, that I, I mess it up, I blow it, that I'm a sinner in the words of Scripture. And that I need saving. I need deliverance. I know, God, that I'm not doing things the way you want me to. So come into my life and save me today. Let you be my Lord, my Savior. Let me be your child. Bring me into your family and show me how to do this. Pour, pour blessing into my life that I can then pour it into other people's lives. That I can be part of what you're doing in the world, God. Save me today and make me your child. I believe that Jesus died on the cross that way. If you, if you prayed that this morning, and you meant that this morning, God honors your prayer. God says, if you pray with a believing heart, that he honors it. Christian, let's be serious and faithful and obedient to God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> what we like to do